You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Uh, We are in chapter 15 of Romans, which is just one of uh, a few practical outworkings of the faith chapter. Chapters uh, chapters 1 through 11 were doctrinal in essence. Uh, They all brought forth the doctrines of Uh, depravity, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, the doctrines of sanctification and being set apart from the world, um, also by grace through faith that we're set apart from the world by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We looked at the doctrine of God's salvation will in chapters 9 through 11, and then in chapters 12 on, we see in light of these things, in light of this deep doctrines of grace and mercy and in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, bringing about movement in our life. We have these practical exhortations, specifically practical exhortations to loving one another. Chapter 12 is just rich with love passages. Let love be without hypocrisy, that we would prefer one another with brotherly affection, preferring one another. And, uh, and we did a deep study last week as we did the whole chapter of verse 14 into the liberties of Christians, the freedoms that we have, and that there's a law of liberty that is so true that we have freedoms, but trumping that is the law of love, the law of love. And that continues on through verse 7 today in chapter 15. Now, one of the New Testament's favorite expressions uh, is a two-word phrase, one another. Uh, outside of the Gospels, the New Testament mentions 58 one another commands. And if you were ever a student, you learned that whenever the professor would be lecturing and he would repeat things, those were the things that were on the test. Am I right? And so in the New Testament, man, there's a lot of one another statements. It is important. It's on the test here. Uh, examples would be accept one another, bear one another's burdens, build up one another, care for one another, comfort one another, forgive one another, honor one another, be kind to one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, submit to one another. The list goes on and on. These commands highlight the character of the relationship that exists within the body of Christ. All believers' responsibility to each other. And so the last two chapters of Romans revolve around four more one another commands. In verse 5, we have be like-minded toward one another. Verse 7, we're to receive one another. Verse 14, admonish one another. Verse 16, greet one another. Uh, These two chapters of 15 and 16 focus on Christian duty to one another. I promise I won't say one another at all the rest of the study. Look in a thesaurus and think of different words. Uh, in verse 1, let's look at some of these practical examples for unity and, and building up one another, encouraging one another. Verse 1, we see that we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, these scruples are these weaknesses that we mentioned last week. The idea of weakness having to do with a believer's conscience. You know, do they have a sensitive conscience towards certain Christian liberties? There's certain things that they just cannot drink, cannot eat, certain places they cannot go, certain days that they just feel in their heart they've got to observe to the Lord. 
Uh, they're called weaknesses. They're called scruples. They're called you know things that bring about sensitive or things that stem from a sensitive conscience, certain strong convictions in areas. But we're told that we ought to bear with the scruples. Chapter 14, verse 1 says that we are to receive one who's weak in the faith, that has all sorts of convictions and weaknesses and sensitivities. But in that reception of them, it's not that we would dispute over these things, not to fight and not to bicker with one another about these liberties that we have in Christ. And so the strong ones, now the strong one, it might be you in some instances, it might be me in some instances, it depends on what the issue is, it depends on what the freedom is. But those that are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now I want you, I hope you're bringing pens, I hope that you're a scholar as you come to the word, I hope you're just, you you perhaps, you know, have your notepad open on your phone and you can just write down things that the Holy Spirit would minister to you, but I want you to underline, I want you to note this term, bear with. That we're to bear with one another in love. It's the Greek word bastazo. And like the English word, it can mean to endure, kind of like tolerating someone. Or it can also mean to carry somebody and support them. Now, it it doesn't take that much to tolerate somebody. (laughs) You know, like, well, I'm not going to give them a black eye. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about carrying someone along. He's talking about supporting somebody and that all of their prejudices and errors and faults that arise through weakness of faith and sensitivity of conscience, man, that you would help carry them. You know, the idea conveyed would be that of a, of a stronger, older brother making a journey with his younger, weaker brother and, and that he would stop and he would wait and he would carry this brother along and he would help and he would encourage and he would give sustenance to help this weaker brother in the journey. I like the Phillips translation that says that we ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and qualms of others and not just to go our own sweet way. I like that. Shoulder it. Put your shoulder into it. Help this person. You know, help that weaker brother along. Not to go your own sweet way, but obviously you're thinking of their needs. Now, it's easy to bear with the people that are like you and the people that like you. And that's no big feat. It's bearing with people that annoy you and that have different stances on things and different convictions of days to observes and foods that could be eaten. Thing, you know, just seeing things differently. And it's those that we need to bear with one another. This verse strongly shows us the ecclesiology of the local body. That as we're together with one another, regularly fellowshipping and worshiping one another, we're going to need patience. We're going to need to be long-suffering with one another. We're going to need to bear with one another and forgive one another. If we never were with one another, this would not be needed. I'm all by myself, out on my farm, making my fence, and nobody bugs me, and I don't bug anybody. That's not the church that we see in the New Testament. The New Testament church, there's problems, there's fights, there's schisms, and we work in the Scripture and in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about gospel application that would mend those rifts and mend those tears and glorify God in bringing about reconciled unity and worship towards God once again. As Charles Hodge says, we are not to do everything which we may have a right to do and make our own pleasure the rule by which we exercise our Christian freedom. And how often is that the rule? How often is it, well, 
you know, I'm, I'm free in Christ and I want to do this and it feels good, it tastes good, it sounds good, it's convenient, it's at the right time, and that's not to be the rule. The rule should be love. It's the law of love. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we read of bearing and sharing one another's burdens. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. How? How, how should this be done? In a spirit of gentleness. As Matthew chapter 18 tells us, with the end result to gain the brother. There should be a gentleness there in your confrontation. And you're to consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Now look at verse 2 there in Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't it beautiful? that What's the completion of the law? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. As you're bearing your neighbor's burdens, as you're not just tolerating them, but you're carrying them along, you're enduring with them. This is a fulfillment of love. This is a fulfillment of worship. It's a fulfillment of the law. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that we're to uphold the weak. That's all beautiful. That's all good. All of this bearing, all of this carrying along. Awesome. But the end result of it, and the end result of anything, as the end of verse 1 says, is that it's not to please ourselves. Oh, but so often it is, isn't it? (laughs) No, 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 it is to please myself. No, it's not. Not to please ourselves. Now, in chapter 14, Paul's urged the strong believer not to despise or judge the weaker one, and vice versa. Uh, The strong was not to distress or damage them, chapter 14, 13. And now he exhorts the strong believer not to please themselves, but to look out for that other person, not pleasing ourselves. Now, man, that is a problem within the church. Pleasing self. It's a problem within the home. It's a problem within our communities. It's a problem within the world. Pleasing myself. Do you know that self-pleasure is the same kernel of sin that was in James Holmes when he shot up that Aurora, Colorado movie theater? Here's a guy who had no history of violence, He was a genius that was studying to be a neurosurgeon. Now picture a neurosurgeon, you know, what does he wear, you know? Dockers and a collared shirt with a tie or something like that. Or picture Mark Halverson, I guess, you know. You know, that guy could never do any wrong. Oh, but man, each one of us has the same kernel of self-seeking, self-pleasure, that sin as Casper, Wyoming recently on November 29th had a young man named Christopher Crumb kill his mother, kill his father's live-in girlfriend, then go into his father's computer class in a university there in Casper where his uh, dad is a professor. He shoots his dad in the head with an arrow from a compound bow. Then as the dad, still alive, tries to shield his class and his students, he tackles his son, they wrestle, the son stabs the dad in the chest and then stabs himself in in, in the chest to death. And here's a description of this Christopher Crumb. He's a borderline genius, upset by the belief that he had inherited Asperger's syndrome from his dad. Tragic, hard, no doubt. Jacob Roberts, this Tuesday when he shot three people, killing two of them in the Clackamas Center Town Mall, you know, as you read of his journey of uh, dropping out of the Marine Corps due to a uh, hurt foot and then you know, uh, having dreams and aspirations to go to Hawaii and missing his flight, you know, being really bummed out that day for whatever reason, went and decided to shoot up a mall. 
On the same day we had this uh, Connecticut shooting, a man named Min Young in China, 36 years old, stabbed an elderly woman before bursting in to a primary school, uh, stabbing 22 children with a knife. No deaths resulted. And then, of course, the Colorado uh, shooting where 27 were killed, 20 of them first graders, six and seven year olds. You know, a, a, a lawyer from China said this, uh, trying to explain what, what's causing these. There are seven different major, huge school stabbings by adults happening in China. And the lawyer said, uh, the social environment is a factor. A person who chooses extreme acts to voice his or her grievances usually believes that his or her cases were unable to be handled fairly through normal channels or legal procedures. And so for whatever reason, these people did these unspeakably heinous deeds of murdering and massacre for the love of self. To some degree, the love of self was this kernel, self Pleasure, selfish ambition, pride, wanting some respect, finally, wanting some reverence, wanting some fame, wanting to go out in a blaze, taking my life in my own hands. Self, 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 self. Selfish ambition, conceit. But of course, you are more righteous than they because your kernel of a selfish act only manifests itself when you tell your kids to shut up and leave you alone because you're watching TV. I'm better than those guys. You lust after photos and videos for hours on end rather than letting all of your desires be fulfilled by your spouse. After all, there's the slight chance that you'd be turned down by them tonight and it's just safer and easier for me to be satisfied this way. God's word is a liar. Who's God there? Self. I'm my own God. That kernel of sin is in you when you give your husband or you give your wife the silent treatment for days on end because it is his or her turn to apologize. Now that guy, he is wicked because he shot them, but I haven't talked to my wife in three days because it's her turn to humble herself. You're bitter and full of unforgiveness and have a feud between a friend or family member, maybe even your own spouse, and your excuse is, I am not a rug to be walked over. I have had it. I've forgiven one too many times. And you have forgotten your Lord Jesus, who was that rug that was walked over and over again. He forgave and forgave and forgave and had every excuse to pull out and pour out wrath and separation for all eternity. But he didn't. That kernel of selfishness and self-pleasure is in you, husbands, when you make your wife cook, clean, raise the kids, manage the finances, while you lift not a finger in assistance, but sit on the couch, strum the guitar, adjust the bow, turn the, ret, turn the wrench, or scratch whatever hobby itch you have, then expect her to fall all over you later on that evening. The kernel of selfish sin. It's in every one of us. For those of you that are younger and are siblings, living with siblings, you divvy out chores within the home because you and your siblings need to have the exact same load of work within the home. If you're like me, you divide the lawn into three parts. And I will not mow one strip of grass that goes beyond my rightful due. 
You have seats within your kitchen table so that one child does the dishes, one child sets the table, one child packs over the tables, and no way, and you know what, am I going to do the dishes or put that butter knife in the drawer? Because it's their responsibility. And you children, it is selfish kernel of sin that if left unchecked and unrepented could lead in the exact same tragic acts that happen in these places. Or, you're a consumer Christian who doesn't participate in the body of Christ in any capacity or minimal at best in your time, in your attendance, or your resources because another person, place, or thing takes precedence over the bride of Christ. Then you criticize, complain, whine, and threaten to leave the church over temperature, volume, or humor level when it's not just to your liking. The sin sin of pleasing self needs to be killed. And I know that this is hard stuff. I felt led by the Lord to write it down just like that yesterday as I was studying. I feel it's, it's specific to our body. I had no one in mind. I just felt the Lord writing out on the keyboard. Repent, you guys, because it's no better than what these men did in these schools. It's no better what they do at the mall. And it robs God of just as much glory. The sin of pleasing self needs to be killed. Romans 2.8 says those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, listen up, teenagers. Man, my, I know my most selfish years were in my middle school and high school years. Those were the times I was di- dividing up the lawn. You know, I was dividing up the chores and I wasn't going to do anything that, that wasn't my task. And if you're self-seeking and you don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, it's called unrighteousness. Self-seeking is it's unrighteousness. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul that does evil. To have that kernel of sin unrepented of, it's wickedness. Romans 8.13 tells us, man, if you live according to the flesh, if you let that flesh rule and reign, you will die. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit you mortify and put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. I love what verse 14 says. I didn't write it on the screen, but it says, for those that are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of daughters of God. It's those who are led in killing that fleshly, self-seeking, self-serving, self-self-selfishness that it's obvious the Holy Spirit is in them. Romans, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, a term that we have forgotten, and I remember saying it a whole lot more back in my youth group days, is death to self. Death to self, death to self, death to self. I saw a picture of a, a grave in a graveyard, and, and the name on the grave was just self. <laughs> And man, we need to bury that old man that wants to rule and seek his own. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says that we're to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. We're to prefer others. Man, the selfish man dies when another one is preferred. And he dies a little bit more the next time another person is preferred. And it, and it does get a little bit easier and easier and easier as time goes on, as the Lord sanctifies you and works out selflessness in your life. Verse 2, let each of us please 
his neighbor for his good leading to edification. So very practical steps in reconciling differences within the church and solving problems. And, you know, verse one very easily just exhorts us that you need to bear with those people that are kind of bugging you or annoying you or that have these sensitive consciences or weaknesses and that you're not to please yourself. That will really help in the midst of these problems. And verse two says, now please your neighbor for his good leading to him being built up. Now you might, with your little pen or whatever, substitute the word neighbor with spouse, sibling, friend, brother or sister in Christ, or maybe even the word enemy. Let us each please our wife for her good. Let us each please our husband for his good. Let us each please our literal sister for her good. Never had the thought when I was living in the home with my sisters. Let us each please our enemy, leading to his good. Isn't that what we learned in Romans chapter 12? To bless those who persecute you, that we would actively seek out their good. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we do well to do just that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, Paul says, let no one seek his own, but each the other's well-being. And then as you jump down to verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. And as we are seeking our neighbor's good and just just wanting to bless them and, you know, letting ourself die and go away, man, you are a testimony of the gospel. You are living out the life of Jesus in front of these neighbors, in front of these spouses, and it all leads to edification, verse 2 concludes. It all leads to the building up. So Paul isn't exhorting us to weak compliance with the wishes of others, but to promote the spiritual welfare of our neighbor, to build them up in the faith. And you might think, well, Rory, that's the pastor's job. It's the pastor's job. It's the elder's job to build up the church. That's not what the New Testament says. In one of the vision statements of our church, Ephesians 4.11, says God gave some of these offices to the church, apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So that means Kevin, Chad, and myself, and and the others within these gifts here, they are to uh, equip you Christians, give you the tools so that you, can do the work of the ministry so that you can edify the body of Christ and build up the body of Christ. And as the chapter goes on, uh, it would speak towards doctrinal stability. As you guys are equipped in the faith, as you guys are building up the church, no longer will be people within the church be tossed around by whatever wave of doctrine comes their way, but there will be stability and maturity within the church doctrinally. Edification within the church, building up the church, the people within the church. Who cares if our building gets bigger? We want to build up the people within the church. How tragic it is when we lose sight of doing our part to build up the body. The sermon is over, lickety split, I am out of here. Those doors can't open and you can't get out of here fast enough. Man, Brothers has got a great buffet. I got to get over there and I got to eat some chicken fried steak and gravy. Man, NASCAR is on. I got to, that's me. That's my bent towards sin. You know, I got to watch the race, you know, Uh, and, and no regard 
for the souls around you, the souls for whom Christ died. Take time at church, after church, during the week to minister to one another, to build one another up. It's so easy to be busy that we miss out on those edifying times. Do you look around you? See if someone is hurting. See if someone's lonely. See if somebody needs prayer. Sometimes people right next to you respond to a gospel call at the end of a message and you make no effort to befriend them or to disciple them or to get them plugged into the church. You just buzz right out the door. It's tragic. Somebody who's new here to the church could sit here 15 minutes before the service and talk to nobody. Are you reaching out? Are you building them up? Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. For it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Once again, Christ, uh, Paul adds a theological foundation to his appeal. This time it concerns Jesus Christ himself, who's now going to be mentioned in almost every verse, uh, and really particularly Jesus' example. He's this great illustration of putting your neighbor first, of honoring your neighbor, of putting his needs before your own needs. It's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said on that Garden of Gethsemane evening, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, not my selfish pleasures, but your will be done. Charles Hodge said that the example of Christ is constantly held up, not merely as a model, but as the motive. The selflessness of Christ is illustrated here by reverence, reference to the fact that he suffered not for himself, but for the glory of God. The reproaches of those that reproached you, for your glory, God, now they'll fall on me. So why should we please our neighbor and not ourselves? First of all, because even Christ didn't please himself. Christ was looking out for God's will and God's good. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter 2, we have this incredible teaching, followed by a beautiful illustration, where Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a desire for yourself to succeed. All right? Let nothing be done with that as the end. Or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, be humble-minded about yourself. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, Paul lays out the illustration for us. Here's a picture of what this looks like. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's jump down to verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus is the illustration of selfless living. Now, very convicted as I studied for this yesterday. It was a rough week, you know, rough time of lashing out at kids at times and just frustrations and seeing myself wanting to sit on the throne. Lots of repentance yesterday as I studied. And you know what? Seeing it creep up in my kids as well. And so as we ate a pasta ravioli bowl last night, just with the kids, just fostering conversation, 
Russell, what is self? Me, right here, me, self, you know. What's selfishness? I want that, I want that. Good job, boy, you're doing good, you're doing good. You know? And then I said, hey, so Russell, you know, what is uh, serving, you know? Oh, let me hand you this cup of water. Oh, thank you, son, you're doing a great job, doing a great job. And then we acted out scenarios. So, Russell, would it be selfish? Let's say that you have an ice cream cone. It's the only ice cream cone in the house. And Lainey grabs hold of the cone and says, I want that ice cream cone. What do you do as the fight starts up? He says, well, I say, let's share it. I say, well, that's awesome. That's great. But what if she doesn't want to share it? Oh. (laughs) I say, what about just letting her have it? What about seeking her good? What about humbling yourself? Oh, wow. No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so then they went around with toy ice cream cones for the rest of the evening playing. But um, then I got up from the dinner table and I got down on my knees in front of Russell. And I took his socks off and I started cleaning his feet. And I said, do you remember when Jesus did this to 11 of the disciples? Yeah, I kind of remember that. So, Russell, this is not selfish. This is selfless. This is called humble. Humble, yeah, humble. And this is what Jesus did. He, he came down to earth and he came to the lowest place and he humbled himself and he washed some dirty, stinky feet. And that is what Jesus wants us to do. Russell, that's what Jesus wants you to do as a five-year-old. So what about the cross? Was Jesus selfish on the cross? No, he wasn't selfish. No, he wasn't. Because he was the only guy that never sinned. He was the only guy that shouldn't have been on that cross. But he went to the cross for you and for me, for our selfishness. He died selflessly on the cross. How marriages would be different if the husband was looking out for the interests of the wife and kids before his own. What if kids looked out for the interests of your, let me say it this way, what if you, kids, looked out for the interests of your brothers and sisters before your own? Jesus did it. He's not only the model, he's the motivation. In verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. So what was written before? The Iliad? He's speaking of the Old Testament here. That there's men and women that have gone before us. And you can read in the Old Testament about them. You read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Just these passages of men and women from before living out an example of selfless living. And they are all a foreshadow of Jesus, the ultimate one to come who would live selfless living. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us some strong encouragement of how beautiful the Old Testament is, how practical it is for our life. As, as we just read, it's for our learning. It was written for our learning. 1 Corinthians 10 says that we're not to be unaware of the Old Testament. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, there's like four or five different places that that uh, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. And sadly, that's a place the church just doesn't dive into. Yes, there's differing opinions, but a lot of people, they don't even dive into it. They don't even know on the subject of spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant, First Thessalonians chapter 4, about those who have passed away and what's going to result in the end times. I don't want you to be ignorant about the Old Testament, and yet we ignore those passages in the Scripture. And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the Old Testament It says that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, 
And it points to Jesus, and that rock was Christ. BTW, by the way, anywhere in Scripture where you find life, anywhere in Scripture where you find a hero, it's not talking about you. It's talking about Jesus. You know, even a rock that busts in half and has water shoot out of it, it's a picture of Jesus, who if anyone would drink of him, they never thirst again. And out of that Christian would flow torrents of living water. Thanks to Jesus. He's that rock. In verse 5, but most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies are scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after things as they also lusted. So the Old Testament, written for our learning, for our understanding, for warning and admonition, it's good to read the Old Testament, that we shouldn't uh, lust after evil things, or very quickly skimming through verse 7, or that we'd be idolaters, or that we would commit sexual immorality, verse 8. One day, 23,000 people fell because of that. Verse 9, that we wouldn't tempt Christ, nor complain. Strong evidence against murmuring and complaining in the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers. Now, verse 11 here, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. And so how sad that some of you have been Christians for numbers of years, and yet you haven't read the Old Testament. And just not condemnation, but perhaps just a real stern exhortation, there's laziness in your life. How is it that you've been a Christian for years and you've never read the Old Testament? 39 books that have been breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that holy men of God were carried along to write as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 77% of your Bible you haven't read. Man, what an exhortation for us. As we fast this next year, last year we fasted for a week and we read through the whole New Testament uh, in seven days and I'm feeling led, I'm not sure that it's going to be the whole Old Testament, but that a big portion of the Old Testament will be our um, focus as we fast uh, this year around March time. Because the Old Testament has been written for our hope, we read. The Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament truth. It's been said that the Old Testament is Christ concealed, where the New Testament is Christ revealed. And it's through the Old Testament that we, through the patient perseverance and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, great commentary on the book of Romans. If you'll bear with me, they wrote, Think not that because such portions of the scripture relate immediately to Christ, that they are inapplicable to you. For though Christ's sufferings as a savior were exclusively his own, The motives that prompted them, the spirit in which they were endured, and the general principle involved in his whole work, self-sacrifice for the good of others, furnish our most perfect and beautiful model. And so all scripture relating to these for our instruction, and since the duty of forbearance, the strong with the weak, requires patience, and this again needs comfort, all those scriptures will tell of patience, And consolation, particularly the patience of Christ and of the consolation which sustained him under it, are our appointed and appropriate nutriment, ministering to us hope of that blessed day when there shall be no more needed. As F.F. Bruce says, the scriptures provide ample evidence of God's fidelity, especially when they are read in lights of Christ's fulfillment of them. Therefore, the readers are encouraged to place their hope in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
obviously ministered to a few different authors by a few different authors this week. Charles Hodge says the character of Christ is portrayed so there, so we may follow his example and invite his spirit. The Phillips translation of this verse of verse four says, For all those words which were written long ago were meant to teach us today. That when we read in the scriptures of the endurance of men and of all the help that God gave them in those days, we may be encouraged to go on hoping in our own time. We who live in a day and age where men bust into schools and shoot up little kids can read the passage of Pharaoh back in Exodus trying to kill the Hebrew baby boys and of Moses' mom taking faith and putting her son and trusting her son to the Nile River and watching the Lord work through horrible times. We can read of, of you know, the time in Bethlehem when Herod had all the two-year-old boys and under murdered because of his pride. And we can read these examples and be encouraged and have hope, be encouraged to go on hoping in our own time. As one man once said, God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. As the children of Israel got backed up against the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh was coming to slaughter them, he was faithful to open up the Red Sea and allow them to cross on dry land. And then as the army of Pharaoh came through, that sea swallowed them up and killed every horse and rider. They're swallowed up into the sea. God's past faithfulness, when our backs are up against the wall, demands our present trust. In verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And I love that verses 4 and 5, two times we read of patience and comfort. Patience and comfort. The scriptures that God inspired, God himself, is one of patience and comfort. Beautiful names taken from the graces he provides. You can remember those names. The next time you blow it, the next time you fail, the next time you think God's given up on you, you think that that was that unpardonable sin i'm pretty sure it was just committed by me god why why i don't want to have that oh hey he's the god of patience he's long suffering not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance that this god of patience and comforts would grant and pour out on calvary chapel of crook county a like-mindedness toward one another with one mind we would strive together for the faith of the gospel. This like-mindedness is according to Christ. It's, it's according to his model, according to his motive. We're only going through verse 7, so, so uh, bear with me, bear with me. Verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. One mind, one mouth, is that unity or what? In our worship, in our fellowship, we'd be as one man, why are we to please our neighbor as ourselves? Because Christ is the way to united worship. He lived it out. He brought about united worship. It's according to Christ. So we pray of unity in, of mind in the essentials. That when we worship, we would worship with one mind and one mouth. And that's why I kind of like having the, the uh, words up on the screen. We can all sing them together with one mind, one mouth in synonymous union. But, as Kent Hughes says, we impoverish our worship and offer poor praise to God by stubbornness and lack of love to fellow believers. 
We rob God of glory when we come in through those doors without checking self to the curb. And we come in and we've got selfish motives and we've got selfish preferences. And we don't understand that there's grace and there's room to have drums on a stage and there's rooms to have movements beyond the PowerPoint screen. That, you know, there's grace to have a Christmas tree. There's grace to not wear a suit coat to church or to preach in. And we let these personal preferences that are just that opinion, we let that rob God of glory and it takes away from that one mind and one mouth worshiping God. We impoverish our praise when there's stubbornness, contention, strive, or disunity going on. And when we do impoverish praise, that robs God of glory. And notice the end of verse 6. It's all about glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of words on a screen are to glorify God. The purpose of times of fellowship where we all come together isn't that we can have a club like the Eagles and the Elks Lodge, but that we can glorify God. The purpose of any human need being met is not human in the end. It's that the purpose of glorifying God, that's the end. The purpose of the free Christmas bazaar isn't so kids have gifts under their trees. That's great. But the purpose is that we might ornament the gospel, showing the gospel off to people and show them that there's a greater gift the gift of Jesus. These are a shadow of the greater gift. It's for the glory of God. And here with the idea of unity and fellowship, fellowship isn't even the end. The end is to glorify God together. As John Stott said, unity is with a view to worship. It's with a view to worship. So, therefore, verse 7, closing with verse 7, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Why should we receive one another? Why should we accept one another, even those with scruples and weaknesses and tough time tolerating us? Because Christ, the model and the motive, has accepted you. Now that word receive is the same word from 14.1. We talked about receiving one another who's weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. It speaks of bringing someone in with the intent of fellowship and hospitality, even those that don't see eye to eye on things with you. Remember what state you were in when you got saved and how much grace God has had with you and the people God has surrounded you with in your life. We want to welcome people into our fellowship, into the brotherhood. You guys, go across the aisle, go across the row and the room and say, hello, I'm Rory, what's your name? What's your last name? Are you new to Prineville? Are you new to Calvary Chapels? It's your first time here. I see that you're a woman. Here's my wife. I want you to know my wife. Exchange phone numbers. Here are my kids. Here's one of my friends that can be your friend now too. Here's my address. Come over today for lunch. We're having cold cut sandwiches with broken potato chips and watered down lemonade today for lunch. But I want you to come into my home. All right? And how sad that there are people that have been part of this church for a year and never been to somebody else's home in the church. You know, a woman might come in here and not have a single Christian friend in her life. And she's come here for a while. And have you reached out and loved on them? I remember I moved 13 times before I graduated high school. I went to a lot of new churches. I went to a lot of new schools. And most of the time, I was the one that had to go out and make friends. May it not be said so here at Calvary Chapel. May you go out and make friends. 
I remember being welcomed at a church in Lakeview, and Chad Grogan was one of the guys that came, and he received me. He, we, we had sweet fellowship and brotherhood. And uh, may that be the case here. God forbid that someone come into this church and walk out without having a good, deep, loved-on conversation with anybody, and even an invitation to somewhere or something. Are you in a core group? Come to mine. Are you in a 242 home group? I know mine's full, but come to mine. Be a part of our church. Be a part of our family. Don't make the error thinking that someone else will be the hospitable one to that individual because someone else is thinking that you'll be the hospitable one to that individual and it never goes anywhere. Kendra, why don't you come on up? F.F. Bruce says, take your fellow Christians to your hearts as well as your homes. Unity, love, Even that's not the end result. Receiving one another, as Christ received us, it is all for the glory of God. That is the end result. That is the chief end of man. Worshiping God, glorifying God, and enjoying him forever. Let's pray. Why don't we stand? Lord God, convicting message. Your Holy Spirit knows exactly what portion is for what person including myself, God. We pray that your spirit would preserve the unity of our body, Lord. The little qualms and disagreements, Lord, that, that they just be set aside for the sake of love and for the sake of your glory. Lord, how amazing that every chapter we go through We just fall back to Jesus. Every doctrine or every practical work, we can look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is currently seated at the right hand of God. Lord, oh, Lord, I'm so selfish. Lord, that I could talk to my kids that way this week and put that on my wife to clean that up. And we are so selfish, God. Lord, the consumerism within our church, as if the church is a, a business offering a product that can be taken or leaving. Lord, this is your bride. It is a body. It is an organism. Your blood bought these people, Lord. And Lord, you ultimately are offended by consumerism in the church. We pray your gentle spirit would convict that and bring repentance, Lord. Lord, husbands that are just Dull. that are to be examples of Christ, but would they make their bride serve them? Thank you for your grace, Lord. Root out that kernel of 
self-pleasing God. Show us it right now, Lord. We want to repent. Thank you for paying for those selfish things on the cross in your great selfless act. Lord, this is all for the glory of God. Lord, to have a church that is each individual serving and using their gifts and assembling and edifying one another. Lord, that's not for Calvary Chapel's name to become great. Or that the elders could say, job well done, buddy. But it's, Lord, that every focus would be on Jesus in the most pure and beautiful context. We repent today, Lord. We confess selfishness. We thank you. You're our sympathetic high priest who understands. And we ask even today that you would pray for us, Lord. You pray for us in our failure and in our weakness. And Thank you for being our model and our motivation, Lord. We worship you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.